Welcome to the Paytia Education Podcast. I'm Dr. Bernie. I'm Dr. Richard. Richard, it's early in the morning. It is, it is. We, we're trying something new this week, and we hope that it will um, increase the availability of some of our listeners to check us out live on, on uh, Mixler. And it seems a little bit strange to say that we're broadcasting live at 6.30 in the morning on a Friday with the goal of increasing listeners. Uh, this is what... Um, <laughs> Those early morning shows, like the Today Show? Yeah. They do this every day, right? That's right. We're like the Today Show, hey, I think. We are. You know, we, we are the uh, Today understand. Show of Highland City. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, God. That's so, um, no, it is, it is good to be up and at it. Um, we usually are, and we know the teachers are, so we're right. hoping that what? they're able. We know the teachers are up early because school begins shortly, uh, but it is Friday. And uh, we hope you're listening. We hope you're able to listen, either getting ready or in your car, in transit. Um, hope you're able to tune in and listen to what we have to say today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, that's exactly the, the thought, uh, is that we wanted to um, try to be available for teachers. And, you know, we know that this time of the morning, uh, most teachers are up and up and going and getting ready for school, if, if not already at school. So. And we know students are, too. I see students... Oh, on our way into work, we see students waiting for buses at five uh, and five thirty. And mm-hmm. that's uh, man, I I, I, I remember those credit? days. I feel for I feel for all of you because you know we get up and come here this early, um, and that's one thing. Ours is voluntary. Uh, but for uh, fourteen, right. fifteen, and sixteen year olds to be getting up this early to go to school mm-hmm. um, to to learn and to um, well, be held accountable for what they're learning in the way that we're going to be talking about a little bit today is pretty uh, concerning. So. And I, unlike stu- I would rather be here than in bed. Students right. would rather be in bed than at school. That's true. You know, which That's is true. So I give you guys credit for getting out and getting up, and uh, especially when it's chilly and dark. Yeah, you know, yeah. it says a lot about you. So yeah. you know, I, oh, that's and it's it's sad to me when I'm driving by and you see the kids huddle up uh, in the corner uh, or the, the the corner there between um, waiting for the buses to arrive. Yeah, right. It's a uh, poor guys, but you know, th- this is an aside. But my my son's uh, school next year, they're changing their schedule. Oh, what? What's the time that they're going to? I was trying to talk. I was talking to an audience the other day about that. What they're what? not going to start school until after eight. The high school isn't going to start until I think eight fifteen, eight thirty. Fifteen. Okay. I was like trying that. to. They they asked me what time it was, um, because they're they're struggling with some of the same problems, and I couldn't remember the exact time. So it is around eight fifteen, eight thirty. Eight thirty, something okay. like that. Yeah. I was hoping it was nine, but which is great, and and they're and they're not even um, surprisingly. <clears throat> They're not even um, uh, changing it to where they have to be there later. Um, oh, in fact, I, I just looked at the email. So they're it's not actually eight forty-five. They're starting. Oh, okay. That's they're starting at eight forty-five, okay. and they're going to get out at two thirty, and okay. they're going to go from a seven-period day to a six-period day. They're going to go back to six periods. Right. Yeah. They which instituted I, that seven-period day a yeah. year or so ago, and which I think is fantastic because you know it, it's it, it's. You know, we talked last week, and we're going to talk a little bit more this week about developmentally appropriate education. Mm-hmm. And we often think about developmentally appropriate education from the perspective of elementary school right. kids and things like that. But you know, when it comes to high school kids, 
something that's developmentally appropriate is that shift in biorhythm yeah. where they stay up later at night and need to sleep a little bit later in the morning. And, yeah. you know, for years, high school, the high school structure has really battled against biology. Right. Um, and uh, so it's great that there's a, that the, the school is kind of thinking about mm-hmm. that. And Well, um, the idea was, I mean, it, it was a good intention. The idea was that if you're going to have kids waiting on a dark street corner, it's better to have a 15 or 16 year old than a seven or eight year old right. at 630 in the morning. Um, hence, little kids started later and older kids started earlier. Right. We, we get that. But biologically, teenagers... Uh, release melatonin a couple hours later. Right. And so they go to sleep a couple hours later. Yeah, and I think the other aspect of that earlier start day is so that they end the day earlier so that if they work or if they, you know, all Mm -hmm. the extracurricular activities that that high school kids do, you know, we're not pushing that until 7 or 8 or 9 o'clock at night on school nights. uh, That still does happen sometimes uh, with some sports and activities. But, um, but yeah, so so it's great that that's happening. But... um, you know, it, it, hopefully other schools will learn from that and we'll, we'll start seeing some shifts right. in some of those things because, you know, certainly it can be done. Middle schools uh, around here don't start until about 9 o'clock in the morning uh, themselves. So, um, But that's, that's not really the topic for today. No. The topic um, today is Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> the, uh, I'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> well, so we're going to talk a little bit more today um, about... Uh, some of the issues that that's leading to this two-tiered system. We we talked right. about that a lot I last week. Last week, right? Um, and and it, I, I went back and I was looking mm-hmm. at our podcast from. Um, well, I say last week, but it was really just Monday. Monday right. um, uh, we're we, we've shifted our schedule a little bit to accommodate, as we were saying. So, um, so it was just Monday, but that was a long that was a long podcast, and we went over a lot of. Mm-hmm. details, I think, right. um, some specifics that I think are really important for, for folks to understand. And so this week, we're going to delve a little bit more into certain aspects of it. Right. Um, because I think, again, this is some stuff that we need to be talking about. And we need to be talking, so much of it comes down to money, so much of it comes down to, you know, how schools are, are measured, that um, I think that we should, we should be a little bit more specific about some of this. So, right. um, when we were getting ready, Richard, you, you found an article earlier this week um, that sort of triggered some of this. Um, you know, we, we were talking about, uh, some of the schools were talking about how this two-tiered system is happening because we're, we're creating, um, and I think it was very similar to words that you used in, in the last podcast, we're, we're creating schools of haves and schools of have-nots. Yeah, yeah, we really are. We're, we're, we're creating, what we mean by a two-tiered school system is we're creating highly successful, what everybody calls highly successful schools and underperforming schools. Uh, we, we are co- uh, very purposely creating a two-tiered school system. And that's a concern to us because a two-tiered school system, whether it's one for whites and one for blacks or one for rich and one for poor, a two-tiered school system creates uh, a privileged class and an underprivileged class. Right. Okay. So it doesn't matter how you divide it. When you create two school systems, one is going to be privileged and one is going to be underprivileged. Absolutely. Okay? So that's our concern. So um, last week we talked about. Uh, well, it, it's our concern because when you create the way that the two tier system is designed is that um, right now is that the both tiers 
or, or the higher tier is not available to all students. That's right. That, that's it, the issue. If there was a two-tier system and everybody had access to the higher tier, you know, there, there's always going to be students that struggle. Um, there's always going to be students who have learning disabilities or have things where they're going to need some specialized support. But the, the, the issue is, and, and again, this was something you noted in the last podcast, the, the issue is, is that if you want to have a school that specializes in technology, there should be enough seats for every student who is interested in technology to be able to attend that school, mm-hmm. um, even if that means that you have to have multiple schools that do that. So the, the issue is, of, is accessibility. And, and then, you know, of course, we'll get into the, the, the school's uh, ability to, to have students counseled out. But, um, uh, but that's, that's, the, that's the big issue is that the, these schools are not available to all students in this, you know, education right. by lottery. Right, right. Um, and that's that's the concern that we have. There's that movie that we mentioned last time, Waiting for Superman. Right. And there's that horribly depressing scene at the end where this little girl, she's about eight, maybe nine years old, mm-hmm. uh, isn't selected. You know? yeah. So, so she, she's not selected to go to the charter school right. or the magnet school. So she has to go back to her zone school, her neighborhood school. And this is a two-tier. So number one, we have education by lottery. Some kids get it, some don't. So when you create a two-tiered system, um, you automatically create that admission issue. Okay, so let's but let's go back to the beginning. Um, we're told we've been told for years now that um, that we need to have we need to do something about our educational system because schools are failing. We have been told since the nineteen eighties that our schools are failing. Um, let's let's pause for a moment, okay? Because what I I think what we have to do is put this in a, in a different context. I think we have to talk about what do we want our schools to do? Right. Okay. What, right. what is the goal of education? And, and this is something that we often forget. When our country was first founded, <clears throat> this really was, this idea that we would elect our own leaders was completely revolutionary. It truly right. was. I yeah. mean, we, and we forget that countries were controlled by kings at that time who, who inherited their positions. And so suddenly you had this group uh, in, in the, these uh, uh, rough-hewn colonists saying, um, we want to get rid of the king and we want to do this ourselves. That had never been done before. Right. Or it hadn't been done for 2,000 years. So this whole notion of, of moving to um, a, an elected leadership rather than inherited leadership was entirely new. So between 1781, which is uh, 1780, 1781, 1783, when the Constitution was finally written, I mean, if you want to go back to the Declaration of Independence, you say from 1776 until 1830, that roughly 50-year period, um, schools were developed and there was a great debate about how do we prepare citizens to govern themselves? Right. How do we do yeah. this? I mean, nobody had done it before. So they're saying, how do we how do we get citizens to get enough information so that they can so that they can make intelligent decisions about choosing their leadership? Right, because you know, let us not forget that that at that time, um, everyone couldn't read. That's right. You know, everyone no, wasn't there was educated. No reason to. Right, because mm-hmm. because what you needed to know was told to you. That's right. And, and or you learned your, it as an apprentice. Your your position in life right. was governed by mm-hmm. what you um, what you were taught directly, not what you learned uh, through through. That's right. A, a, a educational process. Mm-hmm. 
a general if, education process. And if your father was a farmer, chances you were going to be a farmer. Right. If your father was a silversmith, chances are you were going to be a silversmith. This is all going to change now. In 1776, this all changes. So the only people who had to read them were people who were going to go to, to school, to college, to become lawyers or doctors or whatever. Right. But these were these were generally wealthy people. Right. That, that all changes in 1776. So schools were tasked. So we said, well, how do we do this? Well, for example, George Washington wanted to start a national university to produce an educated elite to replace the inherited elite. Right. Okay. He said, you know, we have to educate them so that they can do the job that the princes and dukes and duchesses and kings did. Right. right. But we're going to do it through education. Thomas Jefferson, on the other hand, said, no, let's, edu- let's educate everybody. And the ones who are the highest achievers will have meritocracy, will develop a meritocracy right. based on achievement. Okay. So so the, even the founding fathers uh, were, were, were um, vitally concerned in how do we educate our country? And so, so the first schools that were really developed, called the common schools, developed in Massachusetts. And by 1830, we had worked this out. And we mentioned the name Horace Mann last week. Horace Mann now is an insurance company uh, that teachers <laughs> use. But, but there was a real Horace Mann. He was the Secretary of Education in Massachusetts. And he said, if we're going to build a nation, we have to educate our citizens. And we have to give them this common background because this is all new right. and we're creating something entirely new. People are coming from all over the world and we have to create this common, uh, this common knowledge and this common uh, political attitude. And how do we do that? We do it through our schools, the co- what he called the common schools. Right. And I'm, I'm going to throw something in here real quick because we see these mem- memes and, and things out there about, you know, what students learned in the 1800s in school compared to what they learn now and how students back then understood some things that students mm-hmm. don't understand now. And, and, and I think that this is exactly the point for, for why that's the case. Back then, they taught students very practical, world-related information Mm -hmm. that they needed. You know, they knew how the government worked then because the idea, again, was to educate them very specifically that because that's going to be the future leaders. You know, our our founding fathers were very cognizant of the fact that they were aging and Mm -hmm. that they needed to educate other people so that they could carry on what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was talk about making Washington a king. Right. I mean, there, there was that consideration. We didn't start out with um, two terms. Right. I mean, in fact, there weren't two terms. Roosevelt, you know, 100 years later, served four terms. Right. So Washington said, it's better for me to step down now because we don't want to make this a long-term position right. like a king. Okay? Right. So, so all this was brand new. Right. And, and so, so, they, so the education that the, that the students received during that time in our history mm-hmm. was detailed in ways that is very different than it is today. And so when, 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 when you know, these people go out and, and they're asking um, people on the streets or students questions and they don't know these answers and, and then they go back to these textbooks from the 1800s right. and they say, oh, well, you know, that's what they're learning back then. Right. You know, our kids today don't know. Well, because education then was a very hands-on, and you use the word apprentice. Right. Uh, apprenticeship earlier, it was almost an apprenticeship to say, you know, right. these are the very specific skills you need, the very mm-hmm. specific knowledge you need to be successful. Right. And the important point is, is that 
Even from our founding as a nation, schools were tasked with accomplishing specific goals. Right. In, in the beginning, it was to create an educated citizenship. Let's go up to the end of the 1800s. So that was the beginning of the 1800s. By the end of the 1800s, we have the Industrial Revolution. We have millions of immigrants coming from all over the world to work right. in our factories. So here we have this, this influx of um, immigrants from all over the world who speak different languages, who have different customs. So how did we integrate them into the United States? We asked our schools right. to Americanize them. Right. Nobody else did that. Schools did it. So we created these huge schools, particularly in New York and Philadelphia and, right. and other manufacturing cities. And we tasked our schools with um, taking these uh, immigrants and turning them into American citizens. We taught them English. We taught them American customs. Okay. So schools were asked to do that job. Then by the middle of the century, we had... Um, um, Segregation. Okay. Right. So, so suddenly it was discovered after World War II that we have a segregated society, and we had black schools and white schools. And um, well, it wasn't that it was suddenly realized. Suddenly it was they they said, "Wait a minute!" Uh, somebody said, "Wait a minute! This is a problem," mm -hmm. Be mm -hmm. because they they recognized the what was happening that even right. though you know uh, slavery had been abolished right. sometime before, mm -hmm. um, you know, you know. 50 years before just right. um, the you know these these same kind of issues were remained because of segregation and and you know um, second class and and, and again it, right. it was a two-tiered system because, at that time because in 18 in the 1890s the supreme court said separate is can be equal right okay so there's no problem you can you can have separate facilities for the races but they can still be equal um, so you can have a black you can have a train car for um, African-Americans and a train car for white Americans. And as long as you're providing a train car for both, there's no problem. Right. Okay. By 1954, we have Brown versus Board of Education, which addresses this issue in schools. And it was decided that separate, in fact, is not equal. Right. Okay. So we have a segregated society. We segregate by neighborhood. Right. Okay? So if you have neighborhood schools, you have segregated schools because they're they're. They're populated by the people who live near them. Right. Okay? Who was asked to integrate society? Once again, we turned to schools to say, let's have integration. They didn't integrate anything else. They integrated schools. Right. I mean, that, that's where... So schools were asked to solve the problem of integration. Then you have 1950, and the Soviet Union launches Sputnik. Okay. Now we have the space race, and now we're get falling behind. The United States is falling behind. So how do we create more engineers and mathematicians? We turn to the schools to do that. So, so schools function. There's two points I want to make. Number one, schools are tasked to accomplish social and political and economic goals. Right. Okay? We always have been. Right. All right. So the first thing we have to ask is, what do we want? What Currently, do we want our schools to do? What should they be doing? And that's the first question we ask. Um, and so that's number one. What are we asking our schools to do? And then how do we want how do we want to accomplish that? Because nothing that happens in schools happens accidentally. Schools can only do what they're asked to do by the people who are in charge, by politicians and policymakers. So none of this happens accidentally. So the first question we ask is, what do we want our schools to do? Let me give you another example. 
When Sputnik was launched in 1957, the United States government responded with the national, um, uh, the National Defense Education Act (NDEA). Uh, in 1958. President uh, Eisenhower was the president and he was afraid of reacting too much and he didn't want to unbalance the budget. We had a balanced budget after the war and uh, but Congress decided that we needed to catch up with the Russians so they allocated about a billion dollars. But what they did with that billion dollars is they didn't say our schools are failing, we're behind, we're going to get crushed. There was this fear that we were going to be behind the Russians. You know, this this um, Sputnik weighed 184 pounds mm-hmm. and it went around the earth every 92 minutes and it did this little beep, beeping mm-hmm. sound. Scared the scared everybody to death because they figured, oh, they can launch missiles from there. We're right. going to be nuclear explosions, and so they they you know the sky is the sky was really falling. And so when we responded, we didn't respond with school reform. We, sp- we responded with curriculum reform. S- somebody in Congress said, we need, more t- we need more math, we need more science, we need to update our labs, we need to update. And so Congress allocated money to update the curriculum that would produce more scientists. And so kids got loans and scholarships to go to college. Kids who never could have gone to college before could go now. Right. My cousin. Uh, who's, who had an electronics company here in Florida. Um, he was able to go to college because of NDEA, and he became an engineer and worked mm-hmm. on the space program. And so, um, so, so two things happened. Number one, what do, we want our ki- what do we want our schools to do? And number two, how do we structure them um, and how, to respond, how do we respond to these crises? The crisis we're responding to today is, in 1983, the country said, our nation is at risk because our schools are underperforming. That, that was the problem. Okay? Right. So we said, we have this huge problem, schools are underperforming. Um, and in fact, you can pick up, you can go to the internet today and you can get all kinds of data about how bad our schools are doing and how poorly our schools are performing. Okay, because there's this constant drumbeat that schools are underperforming, that schools are failing, that students are falling behind students in other countries. Right. Okay. If you say something often enough and you say it loud enough, it starts to become true. Right. The second question we have. So the first question is, what do we want our schools to do? Second question is, are school, are American schools really underperforming? Right. There's very little evidence to suggest that they are. Right, unless we com- unless we look at specific measures that you know whether or not we should be looking at those measures, perhaps is a yeah, is depends a, what is you a measure. Question. You right. know, uh, if, if you compare if you compare all American students to a group of elite students from Singapore, guess who's going to come out higher? Right. Okay, and if you're testing math facts, whoever teaches math facts the most is going to do best on that test. Okay. Right. Well. The, what, so the second question, what are you measuring? Okay, so I think we have to be critical and we have to ask these questions, you know. The second thing that happened when we said that uh, education is failing is somebody had to be blamed. Right. Uh, you know, that's the first, first step is search for the guilty. Right. You know? So who do you blame? Right. Oh, it's the teachers. You know? mm-hmm. so, so, and, and what are the teachers? Well, the teachers have teachers unions protecting them. Okay, that was the second untruth. Right. Okay? Now, most people know that. Most teachers, especially at the elementary and middle school, most teachers do a very, very good job and they are highly dedicated. 
Um, I, I think the overwhelming majority of teachers are dedicated. Nobody would do this for the money they make and, and what they're tasked to do and the criticism they're receiving and the way they're treated. Only the most dedicated teachers are going to do that. All right. right. So, um, so number one, what is our goal? Number two, do we really have a problem? Right. And then what is the solution uh, for that problem? Um, I read an article yesterday about an organization called Students First, and, and it rang a little bell in the back of my brain. And I thought, Students First, Students First, let me see. And they have a new ranking system for schools. Okay, And the ranking system, um, the two schools that came out the highest were Louisiana and Florida. And I said, well, Louisiana doesn't have the nation's best school district. And, and that's not really consistent with any other Anything else that we've read, you know, and I said, what the, what the heck here? Well, how did, how did, what are they ranking? You know, so the first question you ask is, wait a minute, there's a little cognitive dissonance here because I never thought of Florida and Louisiana as having the nation's best school system. Right. Well, then I remembered Students First and I went to the and looked it up. Of course, Students First was founded by Michelle Ree. R-H-E-E. Michelle Ree was the embattled superintendent of the Washington, D.C. school district. She had worked for Teach for America, which are non-education majors who go into schools and teach for a couple years and then leave. They're not dedicated teachers. They teach for a couple years and they leave. Well, they're dedicated teachers when they're teaching, when but they're, they're, they're not there to be to. to be teachers. They're not going to make a career. They're not. They're right, not there to right. make education better. That's what you mean by dedicated. Right. They're not there for thirty years and working in the trenches and and learning how to be better and better and better. They do it for a couple of years and then they go do their real job. Uh, that's Michelle Ree. Was her real job happened when she was about twenty eight or twenty nine years old? After teaching for two years, uh, she became um, the superintendent of the Washington D.C. school system, and she brought all these ideas about. De destroying teachers' unions, uh, teacher accountability, firing teachers, getting rid of teachers that she decided were, were uh, not performing um, up to her standard, and having school choice, and all these notions um, at 28 or 29 years old. Um, number one, she wasn't prepared for that job. She wasn't, she wasn't really prepared to do that job. She didn't have the background. She didn't have the education. She had the political philosophy that was popular at the time. Mm -hmm. And she went through Washington, D.C. and just turned the place upside down. Then she left. She came to Florida and she started this foundation. This foundation reflects her ideas that the problem is teachers. That Number one, we have this huge problem. Mm -hmm. Okay, that our schools are underperforming. Number two, that it's the teachers. It's because of teachers, okay? right? Because because to the to a person who doesn't completely understand education, you look at the person who is supposed to be delivering the education, and then you assume, right. well, if education is not working, it must be because it's not delivered mm -hmm. appropriately, mm -hmm. and so that must right. be the teacher's fault. Right, and teachers are protected by teacher unions. Right, right. That, and that was her other thought. Okay, so we have to destroy. Uh, we have to get rid of teacher unions, right. okay? Um, that's another topic for another day. But um, so that's um, students first. So their report card says that um, Florida and um, Louisiana are the best. What they're measuring, what they're using to measure who's the best is who has the most charter schools and who has the most choice schools. Right. That's what they were measuring. And, and, the, and the strength of the teacher unions. Right. And, uh, and, and were the teacher unions really strong and really effective. Right. Okay. So according to their measurement system, Florida and Louisiana came out on top because 
They've weakened their teacher unions, and they have the most school choice. You know, uh, New Orleans, after Katrina, was turned completely charter. Right. Okay. Um, in the wake of devastation. How have they done? Not well. Right. The charter schools in, in New Orleans have not been a raging success, and right. someone's going to have to clean up that problem. Um, the charter schools in Florida, the same thing. Not all of them have been so successful. So, um, so but, I, go ahead. The, you know, one of the things that I, w- I want to kind of encapsulate as, as we're sort of transitioning into this is that as you go through the history, and, and for those of you who are who are maybe interested in hearing a little bit more about the history, um, episode three uh, of the Paydia podcast was dedicated to the history of school reform. And so we went through a lot of that stuff in, in, in detail there. But, but if we, the reason that it was important that Richard went through that today is, is because when we look at our history, what, what our education has historically done is reform came about because of either a need or because it recognized that there's a two-tiered, um, separate is not equal, it recognized that there's a two-tiered system and reform sought to remedy that. Mm-hmm. Today, what we're doing is the opposite. We're creating, school reform now is creating a two-tiered system. And, and so this, right. is a, this, this, this makes this current mm-hmm. sort of uh, approach to reform very different than anything else in our history. And very suspect. I mean, right. when, when we had black schools and white schools, it was not by accident, but it was by neighborhood. I mean, right. nobody designed black schools and white schools. They happened because that's the way Americans lived in neighborhoods. Right. And, and, and then we recognized that and we mm-hmm. said, okay, we need to fix this problem because right. we have this tier over here and we have this tier over here right. and we need to fix that. And, and so we needed... So we use desegregation mm-hmm. uh, to try to address that and to try to fix that. Well, but we, we, we integrated schools by shifting kids around on buses. Right. We didn't solve the problem of, inter- right. of segregated neighborhoods. Right. Okay. And, and that's the problem with educational reform is that we ask schools to solve social problems. Right. And schools, it, sh- that shouldn't be the goal of education. Now... Bring us up to the current day, and what problem are we trying to solve? Well, we're we're now competing in a global economy. Right. What do we hear all the time? Oh, we're not as good. We're not going to be able to compete in the global economy. Whose fault is it? The schools. Right. It's not the schools' fault that we can't compete in a global economy. Right. It's it's not just the schools' fault. Okay. Right. It is. Also, schools reflect the larger culture. Mm-hmm. Whatever exists outside the school exists inside the school. Right. So when we talk about how our students were doing in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s, we also have to talk about what was the American culture like in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. How many single mothers were there in 1955? How many handicapped children were in schools in 1955? How many segregated schools? I mean, you have to talk about, you can't talk about schools as though they exist in some sterile glass bubble where, uh, no, whatever exists outside exists inside. If kids have electronic devices outside the school, they're going to have electronic devices inside the school. If children are sexualized outside, they're going to be sexualized inside. You can't keep the outside world out of a school. Right. And so if we're, if our educational system is in trouble, 
it's not because there's something specifically wrong with the educational system. There's also something wrong with the culture that the school reflects. Right. I mean, look out the window because whatever you look out the school window and see is in your classroom. Exactly. And, and I, um, I had the opportunity to be interviewed on the yeah. news yesterday right. about a, a large, um, I don't, it's not a scandal, it's just a large case happening in a, in a very small town here in central Florida uh, of um, sexting in middle school. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the questions that was asked was, you know, is this a wake-up call to, to schools? And, and, and my response, of course, is that you know, this, is, this should be a wake-up call to parents because, as you said, what, whatever's happening at home and in the community and, and out there is what's going to happen in school. That's you know, right. when, we're not, when we're not teaching our kids mm-hmm. how, to, uh, how to behave, what to do, how to learn, how to manage these social aspects of technology and, and, and this stuff, when we're not teaching our kids that, they're not going to demonstrate appropriate behavior, if, and whether if, it's in the school or outside of the school. That's right. If, if, if kids routinely go on their cell phone and start paging around and going where they want to go at home or in the street, they're going to do it in school. Yeah. I mean, you, why wouldn't they? You can't keep it out. You can't keep this stuff out of a school. Right. If you have children who don't want to be educated and who don't respect authority outside the school, those kids are going to bring all those values inside the school. Right. Okay. And, and at some level, the schools understand this because, right. you know, initially when, when the popularity of, of cell phones was first coming about, you know, sc- schools said no cell phones. Right. And right. it wasn't very long before they said, okay, you know, just don't have them out during class. And then it evolved to, okay, <laughs> just don't talk on the we phone during class. That's right. We give up. Use your phone. And, and, and the schools, you know, because of the way that schools do, they, they said, okay, how can we use this technology to our benefit? Okay, mm-hmm. so now That's right. if you have a phone, let's uh, see how we can use that to help you That's gain right. more information or to research things That's in right. the classroom. And so getting the kids to use it in a more appropriate way. Yeah, yeah we say schools have no discipline. They only have as much discipline as parents have. Right. I'm, there's no magic here. Yeah. You know, if, if, if children are undisciplined, either in clothing or in language or whatever, outside the school, they're going to be exactly the same way inside the school. Yeah, I, I love it when the vi- these videos arise of, of students completely acting out right. crazy in the schools. And um, because somebody's filming it on their phone, of course, and the, mm-hmm. the, the student's mistreating the teacher or mistreating right. other students. And, you know, you see it on Facebook or, or, or in social media and, you know, the responses are always, you know, ah, schools need to get back control of these kids. And, you know, dollars of donuts, those kids mm-hmm. treat their parents the same way. They treat other people in their community the same way. What is the te- what is the school to do? I yeah, mean, the school I mean, can kick them out. but ki- That's right. And that's what they can do. That, right. That's, that's what it. they're left up doing. They can kick them out. Okay. So you create this undereducated criminal class. Right. Okay? Because we're not addressing the real problem. And we're pretending like there's some magic. It's like those magic windows on start or door, you know, that yeah, people yeah. would walk through the door and become something different. Right. You don't walk through a school door and become something different. Right. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And um, um, so, so whatever, I mean, here's a kid, here's a 15 year old kid saying, I've done this all my life and gotten away with it. Right. Why would he I, be I expect any different? To get away, well, why would I think that it's going to be different here? Right. You don't. 
um, there was a time when we said, I have never gotten away with this. I have never, right. never gotten away with throwing the F-bomb. Every time I throw the F-bomb, I suffer painfully, okay? Right. So I don't do the F-bomb, okay? I don't right. do it anywhere because every time I do it, I get, I, I suffer. Yeah. Today, kids are saying, I've never gotten in trouble for throwing the F-bomb. We right. laugh about it in our house. Yeah. That's coming into school. I'm sorry. Absolutely. So, so schools reflect the larger culture. Now... So what we have is, we have this notion that our publics, that our schools are failing. All right, um, I don't think that they are, and I can give you plenty of data and plenty of statistics and plenty of numbers to show you that our schools are not failing. One of the things you have to remember is, people from other countries come here to go to school. We don't go to other countries to go to school. People come here. We do have the finest educational system in the world. Our colleges and universities are second to none. We are not sending our students elsewhere. Other students from other countries are coming here because we have, a, they're coming here because they acknowledge that we have a superior educational system. Let's right. not forget this stuff, okay? Let's not pretend that, that, that our educational system is falling apart. It's not falling apart. It exactly. reflects a culture that's falling apart, but it's not falling apart. Exactly, because I, I think, and we made this point in, in a couple of previous podcasts, is that, you know, when it comes to innovation, when it comes to all these things that we say that we're lagging behind, um, professionally, uh, technologically, mm-hmm. we're still leading the world in these things. You know, we the 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 irony is that you know we say that you know uh, China Chinese schools, uh, you know Asian students in in China are, are so much stronger than ours, but yet. We create the technology here and send it there to be manufactured. To be built. Right. They, they do the manufacturing side. We do the innovation. We right. do the invention. So, so it, you know, and, and that's not to say that, you know, China and Japan doesn't have innovating um, ideas and stuff. But, but the, the, the issue is, is that we need to make sure that we don't, aren't wearing blinders mm-hmm. to say that this test, this international test that is taken when students are 15 years old, and, and the, the schools from around the world are compared based upon these, that that's meaningful in any right, way. Right. Because when it comes to what happens next, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't hold. Right. Um, and, and, you know, we, I, you know, I am a, a fan of, of Finnish schools. Mm-hmm. I have never heard of anybody going to Finnish, uh, to, to college in Finland. Right. I, I've never heard of anyone, uh, of any, major significant innovations that came from Finland. And so so while their educational approach um, puts them at the top of the charts for, for students, I, I think that you know what the long term um, the long term consequences of that, the, the, the outcome of that, you know, there's some differences there. They're, they're, we're not measuring the same thing. And their schools reflect their culture. Right. Finnish culture is very different from American culture. Right. And the schools reflect the culture. Right. And we always forget that. We think, well, our schools are failing. No, 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 it's not the school's fault. Um, and and let's, but, not, let's not think, though, that what we're saying mean, is that, well, so our schools are just fine. We should just keep doing what we're doing. No, because not at all. what's happening right now is based on a false principle. That's right. There's a false premise out there that our schools are failing and our students are falling behind, okay? That's not true, okay? But let's say, 
for argument's sake, that we need to improve our schools. Let's say there is a problem, that we need to improve our schools. Okay, number one, what's the problem with our schools? All right. Are we not producing enough engineers? Are we not producing enough scientists? What is the problem with our schools? Because the solution to that problem has to solve the whatever problem. problem we define. Right. All right. So I haven't been told what this problem is. That that when right. we talk about a nation at risk, okay, why are we testing? Why are we testing kids? Why do we have Common Core? These are solutions, right? Okay, all these things are solutions for a problem. Nobody has articulated what the problem is. What we keep getting are solutions. We want you to do this. Now we want you to do this. Right. Now we want you to do this. Now you have to test. Now you have to test this much. Now you have to give this test. Now you have to use these scores. Now you have to change the scores. Now you have to use this curriculum. Now you have to use that curriculum. These are all solutions for some problem. And in the end, what we're getting is somebody decided that one of these solutions should be school choice, that parents should be able to choose. This is what Michelle Ree says. Parents should be able to choose high quality schools. And, and let's, let's, let's throw in real quick that education is the only place that that phenomenon will happen, that we just come up with solutions and we just, um, for lack of a better term, uh, we just are kind of spitballing and just see, you know, let's, let's try this, now let's try this. Um, how many times in our field, in, in, mm -hmm. in, in medicine, how many times do patients come in and complain that, you know, it's just like trial and error. Right. He's just throwing medicine at me um, and nothing's working. And when that medicine doesn't work, he throws another medicine at me. Um, we don't tolerate that in any other area no. except here in education. When I, you know, our legislature is in its 60-day session right now. They're, they're making decisions about education right, right now. As we speak, they're, in, they're, they're making uh, economic, they're making financial decisions about education. And I would say to them, before you make these, what problem does this solution solve? Right. You know, does every teacher need to be, does, is every teacher underperforming? Because right. the policies that are in place right now begin with the assumption that teachers need to be held accountable because they're not trustworthy or they're not competent. Right. Are you talking about all teachers? Because most of the teachers I know are ferociously competent and dedicated. Right. So so that's number one. An so, ill-defined problem. Right. That's, so, that's problem one. So, that's issue one. So somebody said, well, our schools are failing, so therefore parents should be allowed to choose good schools. Well, Michelle, this is my question. Why are there bad schools? There shouldn't be bad schools. Right. Okay. So fix the bad schools. Right. Okay. Close the ones that aren't working well. And if you know how to educate every child, then you come in and you create good schools for every children. Right. I'm opposed to this two-tiered system. I am absolutely, <laughs> in neon lights, opposed to the current system of magnet and charter schools because they create haves and have-nots. Make every school good. I was reading something the other day that, no, I went to the internet, found an article from 2014, that's two years ago, that three Polk schools are becoming magnet programs. They're going to become STEM, pro STEM, science, technology, education, and math. They're going to become STEM academies. Now, for this elementary school to become a STEM academy, not all kids can go there. This is a neighborhood school right. that now has changed to a magnet school. 
Right. All right. That means that children who don't apply to their neighbor, because it's not a neighborhood school anymore. Right. They okay. would have to get on the, the list. Right. You have to apply. And if you if your name isn't selected, now you have an 11-mile bus ride. Right. She, right. That, I'm sorry. That sounds like punishment to me. The, your consequence is you start your day and end your day with an 11-mile bus ride, okay, right. with all the dangers involved. Meanwhile, you live within walking distance. You of could a walk to this school, but you have to be yeah. bused 11 miles to that school. This is the passion from you I saw on Monday. Second, second, <laughs> this STEM school suddenly is much better than the neighborhood school was. Mm-hmm. Okay? Why didn't we make the neighborhood school better and let everybody go to the neighborhood school? I challenge educators, superintendents, politicians. If you're going to make one school better, make every school better. Right. Don't have these sterling, starry, sparkling magnet schools and have a dump two miles away that no child should go to, that most of us wouldn't have our children attend. Well, you know, let's 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 talk about another really important statistic, because I think that you 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 mentioned to me uh, this morning as we were getting ready. How much did it cost? To change that school? Uh, $12 million was spent to convert these schools, three schools. Three schools. $12 million was spent converting three schools to magnet schools. So that was $4 million per school. Per school. So let, let, let's, let's kind of step back for just a second. And so they're creating these STEM schools. And, and you know, this isn't idealized. This isn't. This is practical, a, a practical right. approach, a practical mm-hmm. thought. If that twelve, if we're saying we need to increase science, technology, engineering, and math, right. STEM. If we're saying that we need to increase that because that's the future of our society, mm-hmm. and that's where the idea of STEM comes from. You know, right. these um, don't don't respond, uh-huh. Richard. When we think about schools like polytechnic schools and things like that that are saying this is what we need to really yeah. start funneling students into, right. that's fine. Okay with me. But if why couldn't we take that twelve million dollars and provide resources for all of the elementary schools and that's what so that N- they can all that's what NDEA did. NDEA after Sputnik said we want to make all the schools better. Right. We want to give this to everybody. Right. Okay. Okay, that makes sense to me. Take the money and spread it out. Make all the schools better. Right. This was make some schools better. Right. That means some students benefit and others don't. And that's a policy decision. That's not happening accidentally. That's not happening because of where you live. Right. That is a conscious policy decision that results in haves and have-nots. Right. And so when we think about not just that $12 million, but the other millions of dollars, right. sometimes you know, in Florida as a collective, mm-hmm. hundreds of millions of dollars that are spent on some of these very specific, right. as you said, sparkling, shining, um, mm-hmm. elite schools. Right. If we took that money and we 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 dispersed it That's right. to the other schools, all of the schools would get in, would improve. Everybody would get better. And, and those students who struggle, because again, mm-hmm. there's always going to be some students who struggle. We will have resources. Other schools will have resources for them to take them from struggling at you know this level That's right. to maybe still struggling, but at a higher level. Yeah, because you take these three STEM schools, cost $12 million. That's, in, that's three schools in one little county. Right. Magna, extrapolate that across the state. How many hundreds of millions, how many millions of dollars were spent 
creating these elite academies for some students, not right. for the common good. These aren't common schools like Horace Mann talked about. These aren't. The, remember, our public schools are not meant to serve individuals. They've always been meant to serve the public. Right. Okay, that's what public education is about. You, you make everybody better. The whole boat has to rise, not a few of the passengers who are on the top deck. Right. Okay? Right. So, so that was one. That was from nineteen. Uh, that was from twenty fourteen. And I found another one uh, from John Romano. Love this article. Um, I posted it on a website. If you and we're, we're, we'll we'll put links to all of yeah. these articles in the show notes. So right. if you're interested in checking it out. And um, so and today um, or, or the other day. A couple days ago, uh, there was an article that appeared call, uh, in um, February 9th, last week. Despite problems, charter schools could get more state money. So what we have is, we have this idea of school choice. So we have um, magnet schools and charter schools, which some kids get to go to. So we have these charter schools now. They're public schools. Their original charter was they were going to provide services to children who, um, uh, for whom... Uh, the public schools didn't have the resources or the expertise to deal with. And that for, was the original that was purpose the original charter. of charter schools. For example, there's there's two charter schools. There's a Pepin Academy in uh, Hillsborough County. There's mm-hmm. two of them. Pepin Academy is specifically designed and run for children with autism spectrum disorder. They right. do an absolutely fabulous job. So if you live in Hillsborough County and your child has autism spectrum disorder, you have a real first-rate alternative to public schools. Right. You can stay in the public school, but you have an alternative. And that's char- that's a charter school working as charter schools are supposed to work. Right. And when I was a student at USF, right. uh, there, a charter school was started um, there near the USF campus. Right. That was, um, you know, the, the specific idea of that school was to look at new innovations in education that could then be used in, in other schools. And again, like we said in the last podcast, that was the purpose of that's charter right. schools. That's, that's why the whole idea of charter schools came about. Right. But what has evolved, as right. we said in our last podcast, is now you have charter schools that are essentially elite academies. Right. They're not doing anything different than the regular public schools are doing. In fact, they're just competing for the best public school students. Right. And they go to the elite charter academy and they're taken out of the regular public schools okay Um, if they can handle the charter academy the behavioral expectations and the academic expectations they get to stay if they can't they get sent back to the neighborhood school and and, and the irony is that um and and we we talked about this in a previous podcast i'm not i can't remember exactly which one um after we were first talking about some of this and writing about some of this we were invited to a charter school um, here in yeah. town because the principal was saying, "Wait, you know, let's let's not throw all of the charter schools in this. Um, you know that that all charter schools do this mm-hmm. because come take a look at our charter school, right. what we're doing. Right. And the the irony is is that the effectiveness of that charter school because they don't get mm-hmm. rid of students, they they provide supports right. and, and everything. The effectiveness of that charter school." He has tried to go to the school district and say, "Hey, this say is that, what." Say that again. He he he, sa- he tells us he has gone to the principal the pr- of this charter school has been to the the school district, right. talk to administrators and say, "Hey, this is what's working for us. Let's expand this. We can make this work." And they said, "No, no, no, thanks." Yeah. Now we got to repeat that. This is a charter school that doesn't have a selective retention policy, has gone to the public school district and said, we have found a way to succeed. 
the public school district said, thank you, but no thank you. Yeah. We don't. And that's why we were supposed to have charter schools, is they were supposed to have the freedom to experiment with new approaches and then adopt the, the so that other schools could adopt them. Right. Okay. No such thing as, no, there's no such thing as, as selective retention right. because the neighborhood school can't throw kids out. Right. They have a 0% rejection rate. So whatever model you develop, you have to develop that works with every kid. Right. This principal has successfully done that. He and his staff have done that. Yeah. But nobody's interested in duplicating it. And, and his is the middle at elementary school, and he's asked to try to expand that <laughs> to, to middle school. Right. And they say no to that. Yeah, no, they don't want to build on it, no. So, so you know, again, we're... we're we're creating this system. We're we're making it this way, despite all of this evidence that is problematic. Despite right. all this evidence that it it is not consistent with what we need to be doing with mm-hmm. with what helps students. Um, another article that we'll put up in the um, uh, in the show notes is uh, because we talked about this the other day about you know how a, a lot of these schools push students uh, faster, you know, the idea of sooner and faster in, in attaining some of these skills, it doesn't have long-term effects. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we'll, we'll put all this again in the, in the show notes, but the, again, the, the issue is just that money is being spent, time is being wasted on these policies and on these ideas that... Um, you know, and I think that the, the, the underlying thing is, is that to fix a problem that we have not clearly identified. Right. We, right. we have not, in research, if we're going to address a problem in research, the, the, what I teach my students when I teach research methods, um, we talk about the operational definition. Mm-hmm. We have to operationally define the problem that we're looking at and that the problem that we're going right. to research. That's because right. at the, it is not until it's operationally defined that everybody agrees that yes, this is the problem. No, it sounds very good when, when Michelle Rhee and other supposed educators, educational reformers say, we sh- parents should have the choice of sending their children to a good school. That sounds terrific. What she's not saying is, we're not going to do anything about the underperforming schools. We're just going to create these elite academies that some children can attend. Um, we're not going to fix. We're not interested in fixing our schools. Um, we're not interested in helping teachers uh, get better at anything. We're just going to give parents a choice. The second problem is you don't have enough places in these elite academies, as you said. It's by lottery. Right. Okay. Michelle Ree, when you have a place for every kid in a high-performing school, then I'll listen to you. But until then, you have nothing to say to anybody. Um, in uh, Last week, Gary Finau um, wrote an article about uh, charter schools getting more money. Um, there, one of the things he points out is that, uh, that charter schools have been given $70 million. Charter schools that have been closed... Have, were given $70 million in state money since 2000. They no longer exist. Um, I don't know what happened to that $70 million. It's gone. Okay. From, what, from, uh, from another article that I read, right. what, happens, what happens that money is it is gone because the vast majority of that money is spent on either construction or rent. Right. Um, and so there, there's no, uh, no return. Right. And, and uh, of, the, of the tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars that has been mm-hmm. spent on it, Less than a million dollars has been recovered right. um, 
from these schools that, right. that ended up because closing. the states have to fund these charter schools. I mean, somebody has to pay for them. So we pour all these money into charter schools, and if they don't work, they just close. Right. Okay? Um, now, summer fly by night. Okay, we, we get that. But this year, now, even with those failures, and even with this whole issue of charter schools are becoming elite academies that are segregating students, the Florida legislature is considering a bill that will give $90 million to charter schools. That's equal. And Rick Scott got on the other day and said, well, we're going to give, you know, we're going to, we're going to give money to charter schools. Yeah, but there are fewer charter schools. Okay. We're giving as much money to the regular public schools as charter schools. Yeah, but there are fewer charter schools. They're going to get $90 million. And if this bill passes, other school districts right. would have to pay an additional $63 million for the public. In other words, we're siphoning money out of the regular schools and putting it into what are becoming elite academies. Right. This is what we mean by the Matthew effect. The charter schools that have a selective retention policy and can have their own rules and their own um, um, standards, they're getting more money than the struggling public schools who right. are left with the students that they don't want to deal with anymore. Right. At the end of this article, it says that um, a, a representative from um, South Florida um, who is sponsoring the proposal to shift local money to charter schools. Let me say that again. A representative from South Florida is sponsoring the proposal to shift local money from your school district to charter schools. That was on February 9th. <laughs> on February 13th, John Romano, Times, uh, Tampa Bay Times columnist, said this same South Florida politician who's sponsoring legislation. Please listen to this. The South Florida legislature who's sponsoring legislation to shift local money to charter schools, that same person is a hundred and gets paid $150,000 a year consulting for an architecture firm that specializes in building charter schools. His sister and brother-in-law are executives with one of the state's largest charter operators. I just read that. I didn't make it up. So you have a state legislator saying we should shift money from local school districts to charter schools, that state, that same person is a consultant for an architectural firm that specializes, that specializes in building charter schools, and his sister and brother-in-law are executives with one of the state's largest charter operators. The title of the article is The Topsy-Turvy Tale of Charter Schools and Whom They Really Serve. Right. Again, it will be in the show notes. And we'll, we'll put that, uh, we'll put these articles on. These are not things we're making up. We cite them only for this reason. We are very, very concerned about why we are creating, whose idea was it to create a two-tiered educational system? It, it completely negates 200 years of educational policy in this country where the goal is to educate everybody. We can talk about the Founding Fathers, we can talk about Sputnik, we can talk about desegregation. Everything that precedes this has been to raise everybody, 
up. Okay. Yeah. This is the first time in our history that I know of, and correct me if I'm wrong, where policymakers are have a specific set of policies that are creating a two-tiered educational system. And I'm sorry, it is not happening accidentally. Something is driving these policies. It's it's political philosophy, it's social uh, policy. Um, in this case, in these articles that we just cited, it's economic advantage. I mean, people who have an economic advantage are in this game and they're lobbying long and hard for these changes to be made. If the state legislature approves this bill, this single man, this legislator from South Florida, is going to benefit mightily right. from this decision. Okay, This isn't an accident. Right. Maybe we should do a whole podcast just to kind of go through some of the conspiratorial ideas oh, behind all of this. Yeah. Because, um, you know, the more that you get into this, mm-hmm. the, more, the more you can't help but lean towards some of those conspiratorial ideas of, you know, Bernie, we've talked about testing so many times. I mean, there is nobody in the country today, no professional, no professional organization, excuse me, no professional educator, nobody believes, no, everybody knows that all this testing accomplishes nothing, okay? Right. You don't do these kind of end of year it's called, in our business, called summative right. evaluation. Summative evaluation is worthless because you can't do anything about it. Right. If you want to do formative evaluation that says, I tested this kid and this is how I'm going to teach him from now on, nobody has any problem with formative evaluation. Right. But to do a summative evaluation and say, now we're going to reward and punish, it doesn't work. It's not doing anything. And yet it continues. You have to believe that any policy where everybody knows it's not working, if it still exists, you have to start following the money. There's, it's money somewhere. Right. And in right. Florida, it's $64 million, isn't it? Right. Yeah. And, and again, um, historically, uh, education wasn't, didn't have that kind of money attached to it. It didn't have the, that business right. aspect to it right. uh, because the goal was to educate Everybody, mm-hmm. so um, so yeah. This is this is a very n- new twenty um, first century right. uh, adaptation of what our public school system is supposed to be. Right. And um, and again, I, I think that our whole purpose and the reason that we talk about this so frequently is because we really got to do something about it. I mean, th- th- there's no end in sight right now. Well, I mean, no, there isn't. And, you know, we've been sold this bill of goods that the United States can't compete in the global economy. Well, number one, the United States can compete right. and is competing in the global. We, have, we still have the biggest, strongest, most vital um, economy in the world. Um, we, we Remember all those years we worried about Japan taking over the country? Right. Where are they? Right. We worried about China. Where are they? Okay. Yeah. It's just not true. I mean, we can compete. But, but let's say for a moment, is it the school's fault that we can't? Right. It, again, this is an economic problem. Right. Is it the school's fault that we don't compete on an... Uh, maybe the school contributes, but there are other issues. But we're asking the schools to solve the problem. Well, but even if it's the school's... Even if the Even school if can solve the problem, first, again, identify the problem. Second of all, 
why are you only solving the problem with a select few of right. the students? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna educate a few, right? And we're gonna do testing. Testing doesn't solve the problem, right? So when because you know again th this is the key point I think that sort of ties it all together about the two tiered system is that even if we give it to you that um, that the schools can solve this. Mm -hmm. larger economic social problem, even if they could. Um, the way that our system is working right now is we're relying on a minority of the students, the upper tier students, mm -hmm. the students mm -hmm. in this in this first tier uh, of schools. We're saying we just need those students to, to fix this problem. And, and, you know, Again, you know, anywhere you go on, on, on social media, um, you know, and if you kind of extrapolate this to other things, everyone says, you know, when, when kids misbehave, when, when things are happening, that's the problem with society. Kids like that aren't educated. They're not doing this. But we're creating a system that keeps them in a, in a position where they're not going to be educated, where they're not going to be informed, where they're not going to be given the skills to take them from point A to point B where they can help solve this problem, thereby creating more problems. You want to lead academies for a select group of students? Build them. All I want you to tell me is what you're doing with the kids who can't attend them. Right. All right. If you're a principal, a teacher, a superintendent, a legislator, you want to create, you want to run, you want to teach in an elite academy, please teach in an elite academy. All I want you to tell me is what do you propose we do with the 60% of students who can't go to those elite academies? Right. Okay. We have, and there's another point, we have common core coming, mm -hmm. okay, which means that everybody has to be functioning. Not everybody's going to. Tell me again what's going to happen to the kids who can't manage the curriculum at that level. Right. Okay. Tell me what we're going to do with the 60% who aren't going to manage the curriculum. This is not aspirational. These are real children from right. real families. They're going to continue living in the United States. If these kids end up, if 50 to 60% of our children end up not getting a high school diploma, I can tell you what that's going to do competing on the global marketplace. Right. And, and, and if, we wanted to, if we wanted to implement this stuff in, in the way that our system was designed to implement this stuff, the charter schools should be doing Common Core. Show us the way. Um, they should be doing Common Core if we think that that's the answer. Right. Put it in the charter schools first right. and then let the public schools do what they do. Mm -hmm. When the charter schools demonstrate that this is an effective way, right. appropriate charter schools that can't get rid of students who don't keep up and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, then we can say, okay, yeah, it has some proven efficacy uh, to, to demonstrate or to, to get where we're trying to go. Right. So we're just, we're just not, um, we're not creating a system. We're not using the system in the way that it's supposed to be used in, mm -hmm. in, a, in a way that's going to get us where I think mm -hmm. that we're trying to get. Uh, we're, we're just not going to get there this our, way. Our educational system was based on the idea that we would all make it as good as possible. There were people who chose to send their children to private schools. I don't have any quibble with that. If you right. have the money to, and you want to do that, you want your children to get a Catholic education or a Lutheran education, that is absolutely your right. But except for that, we're all in this thing together and we right. should all be making all schools better. 
Right. What we have instead is I'm going to take care of my kid in this two-tiered system. Right. That, that's what that's what you are impelling uh, families to do. Right. Is I'm going to take care of my kids given the reality of a two-tiered system. And I think policymakers need to think long and hard about the system. Stop tweaking the budget, stop tweaking policies, and let's create policies that work for all children, because right now they're not. Right, yeah, stop the idea of taking 60-something million dollars from public schools to give to these charter schools, uh, while at the same time saying we need to cut taxes. Yeah. Um, so, um, ah, Richard almost exploded with that one so um <laughs> we have to stop because we have to stop I'm, I'm because break the table. Th- this is it's funny because when we were preparing this morning we were thinking you know this one definitely won't be as long as our the podcast we did on yeah. monday um we're only about five minutes short <laughs> than the one on monday um because when we get talking about this you know there's just so much to it and uh more people just need to be talking about it so um so i think that's it for today okay um we will definitely get all these articles posted, uh, links to these articles posted in the show notes. Um, uh, a quick announcement coming up in March. Um, March. We are, yeah, this, well, this isn't a surprise right. for you. Next but, week um, is the end of February. Yeah, we're, we're getting close to the end of February already. Um, so coming up in March, though, we are excited uh, to be part of a... Um, uh, something that the the ledger, our local newspaper here, is hosting um, on an education. F- they're they're hosting a community forum focused on education, and that's going to be on March twenty eighth. Um, more details will be released on that soon, um, but we're very excited about it. We're, everybody, we're just kind of finalizing all of the details. We're going to have uh, Dr. Richard and I will be there, um, as well as some other uh, other people. Um, a couple of politicians uh, potentially will be there and, and some other educators and education um, reformists. So uh, that's going to be a great opportunity for us to sort of sit down and, and talk about these issues, hopefully in a way that both informs the, 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 the community, but also, you know, creates some ideas for how we can um, elicit change and, and move in a positive direction. I'm looking so, forward to that. That's, that's going to be, a, I hope that's a regular event. I, I know, hope we, so. We have to keep education in the forefront because things are happening in education that really shouldn't happen, and the long-term consequences are going to be disastrous. Right, and, so. and you know, and, and we love the ledger. We we write a weekly column in the ledger, and um, you know, they are so uh, their their editor. She she's so community oriented, and and she wants to um, wants to get this information out, and so um, we're really looking forward to it. So. Uh, so stay tuned for the in, more information on that. As we get more information, we will release it. So um, we'll let you know. Um, so I, I think that's it. Um, I'm not sure what we'll talk about next week. We'll probably try the same time next week, um, 6.30 on, on Friday morning. Um, see how it goes. And hopefully more people will be able to uh, tune in live because we would love to hear from teachers and hear, hear what you think and, and how you feel about things. Um, we certainly do get lots of comments on Facebook um, at uh, the, the Paydia Facebook page, uh, which is just facebook.com slash Paydia, P-A-E-D-E-I-A. Um, lots of comments on things that we post there. You know, I said that we were going to talk about Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a wolf out there. Yeah. And it's not the teachers. What is the wolf? 
I'm not going to say. That, that'll be maybe the there's title. A big, there's a big bad wolf after education today, so and pay, it's not and it's not the teachers, and it's not the teachers' union. So, Paidia episode ten, maybe uh, about the big bad wolf, the Little Red Riding Hood. Um, all right. So, um, also, if you if you're listening to us on on iTunes, please write a review or, or rate us just so that more people will know about us. That's 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 how you kind of raise in the or rise in in the ratings so that other people can find us when they look right. search for education uh, podcasts. So. All right. So until next time, I'm Dr. Bernie. I'm Dr. Richard. Have a, have a terrific week, uh, a great weekend, and um, testing season opens in uh, in about a week. <laughs> so talk about going from the sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> so uh, all right. Have have a great week. Have a good weekend. Bye bye.